Welcome to the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Uh, my name is Dar McDonald and I have $8 billion in debt, but I just raised $450 million of junior secured super priority debtor in possession financing. Uh, we are going to talk about everything that's going on in baseball on January 23rd, 2024. It is three weeks from spring training, but still so much to happen. So many free agents still out there. So many theoretical trades that could happen. Uh, and with me to talk about it all is, uh, my colleague, Anthony Franco. How's it going, Anthony? Uh, I'm doing well. Not as well as you, apparently. Congratulations on, uh, staying afloat financially out of nowhere. Well, still, I still have a long way to go. <laughs> Billions of dollars. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about this is a thing that um, I don't know if every uh, baseball fan will find this interesting, but it is an important thing to understand the finances of the game. So I think it's something that uh, we should talk about. Uh, and it was in the news the past week. So before we dig into the specifics of the uh, what's going on with the diamond sports group. Uh, Anthony, you wrote uh, on the site this week about every team sort of like broadcasting revenue situation and like, how, like the finances that each team is dealing with. Do you, are you able to give our listeners sort of an overview of, of that situation and the model? Sure. So uh, some of the, those numbers are from a couple of years ago. Now uh, we used the Forbes article from last spring that had, data for a lot of teams on 2022 um, teams don't tend to make those rights fees public um, but essentially you know it's every team kind of has their own arrangement for how they handle in-market broadcasting and a lot of the ones that you know a few of the bigger market teams like the Yankees um, you know the Cubs the Dodgers I think to some extent own their own broadcasting network and those ones have tended to do a little bit better, which is, you know, in large part because of how important and profitable those franchises are themselves. But a lot of the teams that have just broadcasting contracts with an outside broadcasting um, corporation, they've struggled over the last couple of years because cable generally is going down. There's a lot of cord cutting. Um, and so, you know, we'll get into Diamond specifically. They're the big one because Diamond, which runs the Bally Sports uh, regional networks, has kind of the biggest percentage, I would say, of, of contracts with MLB teams. But it's not specific to Diamond. A lot of the RSN companies generally are, are really struggling because just fewer people have cable. And as cord cutting goes, the cable system has proven a lot less stable than people expected it to be five or 10 years ago. And these numbers are fascinating in this, uh, article, in this post that you did uh, because huge disparities here i mean i'm just glancing at it uh, again now and some of them it looks like maybe the brewers are one of the lower ones that like they're getting 33 million dollars a year but then you go up to the dodgers close to 200 million dollars a year from the tv deal so these these uh, have a huge impact on uh, the way the team can operate in you know free agency and how they construct their roster yeah for sure i mean it's that's a huge portion of how teams decide to set their payroll um, and then it just kind of feeds back in. So, you know, it's I think this is probably the biggest driver of payroll discrepancies around baseball. It's just how much teams make off of their their local TV deal. OK, so 
that model has been getting shakier, as you alluded to, because of the cord cutting, and that uh, has impacted Diamond Sports Group. Uh, so it seemed as of, you know, maybe a week ago that they were totally going down the toilet and like weren't even going to be doing sports beyond 2024 or something like that. But they seem to have a new deal that's going to allow them to pivot. Do you want to uh, take our listeners through that? Yeah, it does seem like they're going to try at least. I mean, it, the whole thing is still subject to approval from the bankruptcy court. So nothing is official yet, but they essentially have an investment deal with Amazon um, and a few other investors as well. But Amazon's the big one uh, where they'll get around $450 million, potentially more, maybe up to $500 million or so in like short term uh, cash influx. And Amazon, or sorry, Diamond. Uh, to be clear, has broadcasting deals with other sports leagues as well. Um, they have deals with specific uh, NBA and NHL teams too. And as part of that deal, they're willing to sell their streaming rights for the teams that they have. You know, they have streaming rights for every NBA and NHL team for which they have the local broadcasting deal. That's not true of all the MLB teams. It's true of five MLB teams. And they're going to sell those streaming rights to Amazon. So Amazon will be able to stream in market on their prime video uh subscription and in exchange diamond gets kind of a short-term cash inflow that will allow them to potentially stay afloat beyond next season and so in terms of how this could impact uh the way teams are behaving in the remainder of the off season um it seems like it's possible that it could actually have a significant impact you know like I don't think we know for sure, but there have been some reports. I think maybe the most prominent example has been that it's believed by some people that the Rangers want to re-sign Jordan Montgomery, and he wants to re-sign with the Rangers, but they are just under the luxury tax right now and kind of want to wait to see what their TV deal is like before they agree to a big contract with somebody like Montgomery. So, And uh, it seems like maybe there's other impacts that could you know happen in just the next few weeks with spring training just about to start yes yeah i mean i think some of these teams probably had a good idea that diamond would carry their games and pay full broadcasting fees for all of 2024 you know i think um, cardinals ownership in particular has talked about essentially saying like yes our, our off-season spending habits were not affected by this even though we have a deal with with diamond because we had kind of assurances from them that they were going to honor the broadcasting contract, at least for 24. And they've said, you know, so maybe it'll affect us beyond next offseason. But um, at least the way that they put it, they said that essentially their payroll and their spending habits this offseason were not affected. But then you mentioned Texas and um, Cleveland is also in that boat where Diamond has threatened to drop their deal with the Guardians and their contract. They had a contract with the Twins that expired after last season just organically. So. Those three teams, Texas, Minnesota, Cleveland, I think are kind of in a separate bucket where they don't know one, they didn't know whether Diamond is going to carry them at all. And if they did, it would probably have to be at a, a reduced fee because Diamond has determined that those contracts were not as profitable as some of their others. And so I think for those teams in particular, and especially, you know, you you mentioned the Rangers with Montgomery, where they've it seems like been in a little bit of a holding pattern. You know, for those teams in particular, I think getting some clarity in the next couple of weeks uh, as to whether Diamond will carry them both for next season and potentially beyond could really affect how they handle the next couple of weeks. Right. Well, it's interesting stuff. And it's already clearly had an impact on the Padres, who uh, 
their deal with Diamond collapsed last year and Major League Baseball took over the broadcasting. Uh, and it seems to have directly uh, led to a reduced payroll for the Padres this offseason, which led to the Juan Soto trade. So all this kind of stuff has domino effects that affect the rosters and how the teams plan for putting their team on the field. So interesting stuff. Um, let's uh, pivot to the fans for a second, because I think there's still a lot of unknowns, but obviously a lot of fans in these markets want to know how they're going to watch the team, if uh, they're going to have to stream things. Are the games still going to be on TV? Uh, are there going to be blackouts? All those sorts of things. When it's on Amazon, uh, do you need an Amazon Prime account? All these sorts of like qu logistical questions. Do we know? Is that still like murky? Are we trying to figure that stuff out? Do you know, Anthony? Right. So I think for the Amazon stuff specifically, and again, this only applies to a couple teams. Uh, it's Kansas City, Detroit, Miami, Milwaukee, and Tampa Bay are the only ones that uh, the MLB teams that Diamond is selling the streaming rights to Amazon. And that's only for streaming specifically. So, you know, Diamond will still carry those teams on cable. And essentially, if you're going to stream the game on like the Bally Sports Plus app or something, Diamond is now selling that to Amazon, who will probably charge some sort of higher fee uh, to to use it on Prime Video in market. So I think there's a small segment of the fan base that could be affected by that and might have to pay a little bit extra for Prime, um, you know, a kind of bonus subscription on Prime if they want to watch those those games streamed. But generally speaking, I think the Diamond Amazon agreement is not going to have huge ramifications for fans. Okay, yeah, and I think we're still trying to figure out the, uh, like the blackout stuff uh, because I think what happened with the Padres, it's my understanding that Padres fans were able to just stream the games even if they were in the San Diego area which you previously would not have been able to do on like you know MLB TV or whatever but it was something like I don't know 20 bucks a month or something like that but uh anyway I think uh, yeah I think sorry yeah go ahead uh, I think if Diamond uh drops the contract you know so like we talked about with Texas or Cleveland or Minnesota or if Diamond drops the contract entirely and this it's not specific to Diamond as well um AT&T Sports this with the Rockies as well, and they did it with the Pirates and the Astros, but Pittsburgh and Houston came up with some sort of agreement to handle their own broadcasting. But it seems like with Colorado, at least, AT&T dropped their contract last offseason, and MLB is just going to step in and handle those broadcasts as well. And yeah, it'll be like you said, there will be no blackout restrictions. You'll just have to pay for an MLB TV subscription and um, stream it in market then at that point. Right. Uh, well, just before we uh, move on from this topic, you know, you mentioned earlier on that um, the team owning the broadcast operation, like the Dodgers, uh, Yankees, Cubs, and uh, the Blue Jays would uh, be in that bucket as well. It seems like some teams are pivoting to that. So the Mariners, I believe, had a partial ownership of Root Sports Northwest or whatever it was called, and then bought up the rest of it, I think. And then in uh, Pittsburgh the Pirates and one of the other sports teams, the Penguins, I guess, uh, jointly started uh, their own, like, you know, uh, cable ownership thing. Uh, I hope I got those details right or vaguely right. Uh, I, do we think uh, we'll be seeing teams pivoting to that model a bit more in coming years? Yeah, it seems like it. Um, the Astros did that, like I said, as well with, uh, I think it's the Rockets, um, where it does seem like, yeah, it's, it seems like, I mean, the choice for teams for a lot of them is just going to be whether they want to handle the operation of a TV network themselves or whether they just want to turn it over to MLB. 
and not have to deal with the kind of logistical headaches of doing that, but you're relinquishing some of the profits as well. Right. Okay. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, huge, like we mentioned, huge impact on the economics of the game and how the rosters are built. So uh, that'll be interesting to watch going forward. But let's get to the actual moves that are, uh, you know, related to all this. Um, still lots of free agency happening, even though, like I said, we're only three weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training. Uh, the biggest deal in the past week was certainly... The Astros agreeing to a five-year, $95 million deal with Josh Hader, which uh, I think it's fair to say was surprising in a couple different ways. Uh, would you agree, Anthony? Sure. I think, I mean, it makes sense because they lost Kendall Graveman to shoulder surgery. And so they had a vacancy at the back of the bullpen, and there's no one you could bring in that's going to be better than Hader uh, to fill that. But yeah, I mean, it did seem like Houston was kind of up against it financially they were right up against the luxury tax and gm dana brown had kind of broadcast throughout the offseason like yeah we just don't have a ton of spending room and then it seems like essentially owner jim crane was just like yeah well we're just going for it and kind of screw where we've been in past off seasons we're going to push payroll forward we're a win now team and and we're doing it um and what did you feel about the 595 generally did you expect hater to get that high at that point did you think he was going to beat 100 or is that kind of about right for you um i mean it's in the ballpark we talked about it a lot um when we were putting the top 50 together um comparing him to edwin diaz and um i think that the general expectation was that statistically they are so very similar in terms of strikeouts and era and stuff like that like i mean you can pick uh you know try to split hairs and stuff but essentially they're both really 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 good uh and similar in age and all that kind of stuff but we felt that uh i mean the argument for hater beating diaz was that diaz signed his deal just before reaching the open market so he didn't actually have open bidding and then just a year of inflation maybe a slight bump for hater for being left-handed uh if teams cared about that but um yeah so he ended up beating diaz in the sense that you know, the sticker price was technically lower, but Edwin Diaz had deferrals, so technically Hader beat him. I mean, it's the money part wasn't really surprising to me in terms of what Hader got. Uh, it was more surprising, like you mentioned, in that it, it broke so much from what the Astros have done. Uh, not only is it a huge deal for a reliever, but it's just this is the easily the biggest free agent contract they've ever given out. I mean, they we forget uh, sometimes because they've been so good for like a decade now that um, they don't really spend a lot of money on free agents. They've done so much of their roster building internally from their own system. Like prior to this, their biggest contract was for a free agent. They've done some big extensions, but their biggest contract for a free agent was $58.5 million for a Brayu. And so for them to suddenly, you know, come close to doubling that for a reliever when they were also sort of like seemed hesitant to cross the luxury tax because they haven't really done that in the past. That was something that I didn't really think was going to happen until recent days. Yeah, I mean, do you think they're sort of seeing this as, okay, these next two years are, I don't want to say it, but like this is the window's starting to close a little bit and we're really just pushing in. Um, you know, they have, it seems like they'll probably extend Altuve at some point, but Bregman becomes a free agent after next season. Valdez and Tucker, they have under control for two more years uh, of arbitration. So do you think this is just sort of a, 
you know, we're all in for the next two years. And if this doesn't look great for us in 26, 27, 28, who cares? Uh, I hadn't really thought about that, but it, it, I think it, that is an interesting point. Yeah, because Altuve, even if he does get extended, he's going into his age 34 season now. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, uh, I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on their farm system, so I don't know if they have like help uh, coming up to replace, you know, Brickman and Valdez, like you alluded to. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It does feel like sort of a tipping point with the fact that uh, – you know, the extension talks with Bregman and Tucker uh, haven't really seemed to gain much steam. Is that was that your sort of feeling about it, that it's a real sort of, uh, you know, the window is closing kind of deal? Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, they're going to have Jordan Alvarez around for five or six years. You know, they they still have McCullers under contract. And in theory, he could come back from the injury. They extended Javier. So I don't I don't think that they're going to go like full rebuild after 2025 or anything like that. But it does feel to me like they're sort of looking at it like, yeah, well, we're running a little bit low on time with this specific core. And at some point, three or four years from now, we might have to make a decision about pivoting in that direction. So let's just go for it now and, you know, try to take advantage of Seattle playing things a little slowly. And Texas is still very good, but they haven't done a ton this offseason, as we discussed. And so maybe there's an opportunity for Houston to kind of reassert themselves as the best team in the AL West. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, the bullpen now is uh, really sort of, uh, I think, lopsided. Uh, the back three, probably, I mean, you can make a strong case that it's the most dominant back three in the league now with uh, Hader, Ryan Presley, and Brian Abreu. But then it kind of is less, I mean, Rafael Montero is coming off a weak season, and then there's not a lot of experience after that. So do you think that they have sacrificed too much depth by making this one huge impact signing as opposed to say you know signing three different relievers with the amount that they spent on hater no i'm okay with it um you know i i think generally you just if you can build from the back end out it's you could probably acquire middle relief help around the deadline for relatively cheap and i'm also not sure that it was like a, a binary decision for them like i don't I don't know if Jim Crane would have authorized an extra $20 million on payroll if it was for three middle relievers or if it was just sort of a he looks at it as this is our one chance to kind of go all in for a star talent at the back end. And if we didn't get Hater, they would have just kind of sat with payroll where it was. Right. And I guess, uh, you know, once it comes playoff time, uh, the back end of the bullpen matters so much more than the overall depth. Um, okay, so in addition to Hater, the relief market has been uh, moving all pitching moves this week uh, as we approach spring training. So in addition to Hater, we also saw elsewhere in the division, the Angels gave Robert Stevenson three years and $33 million plus an option for 2027. Um, we've talked about Stevenson a couple times on this podcast, but he's probably, I mean, if there was a ratio of, you know, salary to, you know, lack of awareness among fans, he'd probably be among the highest. But uh, this is going to be an interesting deal for the Angels because uh, they already had Estevez. So it's two years in a row making a big splash on the bullpen. What did you make of this deal, Anthony? I think the price is fine. Uh, we had him at four years and I think 36. So he got a little more annually, but took one less year than we expected. You know, they're they're trying to build 
kind of a power back end of the bullpen. It could be a very good bullpen. They they throw really hard at the back end. I just I don't know if this is a team that is a couple high leverage relievers away from being all that competitive. And so I don't know that this is what I would have prioritized if I were the Angels. Yeah, well, I mean, that's very interesting. Uh, the Angels, uh, I've been thinking about them a lot lately because, you know, there's still a lot of big free agents out there and a lot of teams are either well into luxury tax territory or right up against the luxury tax or like we talked about with the Diamond Sports thing, like having sort of payroll concerns. The Angels are still, they've previously spent around the luxury tax line in previous years, uh, including, you know, famously last year, just barely ducking under it with uh, all their late season uh, shenanigans. But as of right now, even after the Stevenson signing, they're like, you know, $55 million away from the luxury tax. So are they sort of playing this waiting game? And are they, do you think maybe they have a late season strike to you know, do something like get a Bellinger or a Snell or something. And if they did, would that make you like the Stevenson signing more? Sure. That's a, that's a fair point. Um, you know, I, if they added, I, I would prioritize a hitter probably over Snell, uh, if I were them, but yeah, if they got, if they got Bellinger or even just, you know, a mid rotation starter and brought in JD Martinez or something at the age, I would feel a little bit better about it. So yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll reserve judgment on Stevenson. Like I said, I think the price point for him in particular is is fine. Um, I just I need to see more from this team in general. But you're right that they they very well could still do more over the next couple of weeks. Okay, well let's uh, also move along. Another uh, pitcher who landed in a surprising spot, uh, Araldis Chapman, landed with the Pirates uh, last night. One year, ten point five million dollars. Uh, were you surprised by this one? Um, maybe a little bit in the sense that they're not going to let him close. And I wasn't sure if that would matter to him. They have David Benar, who's going to be the closer. Uh, but clearly it doesn't seem like Chapman cares about pitching in the eighth inning at this stage of his career. You know, I think one year we had him at two for the site. I, I was more on the, along the lines of projecting him at one, um, personally, but I think one year at 10.5 is, is fine. Now he's going to be the, in all likelihood, the highest paid player on the Pirates, which is a little strange um, and sort of similar to the Angels. It just feels like it's a team that's a little further away from contention than just a back end bullpen piece. But they did need bullpen help as well, and they clearly want to get a little bit better. And we saw what Chapman can return at the deadline um, if they do fall out of contention again. So in that sense, I'm OK with it. Yeah, so we saw um, last year he signed with the Royals, another team that was, uh, you know, not uh, really looking at contending, and he was able to bring back Cole Reagans at the deadline. So it seems like, like uh, I mean, obviously they're hoping to contend, kind of, but if they're out of contention and they can turn Chapman into a long-term piece, that would be an outcome they would probably be very happy with. If Pittsburgh had a little bit more flexibility, you know, obviously they're not going to sign Blake Snell or Cody Bellinger, but if they had enough flexibility to make one more move, um, would you prioritize the rotation or would you target maybe the infield second base or something like that? 
Um, I mean, the rotation definitely seems the weakest part of the roster to me. Uh, like you mentioned, they didn't really need a closer type because uh, they have Bednar. I mean, there's nothing wrong with adding another one. Uh, every team can add an, another elite reliever to the bullpen. But the rotation definitely looks extremely weak right now. I mean, Mitch Keller is uh, fine to let him keep going out there. But, you know, it seems like their number two and number three right now are Martin Perez and Marco Gonzalez, who, you know, Gonzalez was hurt uh all of last year and Perez was uh bad enough that the Rangers bumped him to the bullpen so if those are your number two and number three guys that's not a great spot to be in if you legitimately think you have a shot at contention going into the year all right well let's get to your questions uh we got a whole bunch of questions um so let's start we were just talking about the Angels a second ago so let's get to them uh Paul wants to know if JT Martinez makes sense for the Angels and Anthony I think you just mentioned that a second ago so I'm guessing you agree I did yeah so I agree with Paul so I'll uh I'll flip this one on you do you think that uh pursuing a full-time DH makes sense for them I think I mean uh the argument for it is clear because they had Otani in the DH spot uh, for the past few years, so they have an opening there where they could add an impact bat. I think that there's a counter argument, which is that um, they've had some injury issues. You know, Trout has sort of famously become, I, I don't want to say like injury prone, but obviously his haters would say that. Um, you know, he's missed some time uh, with some nagging issues over the past couple of years. And, you know, uh, Taylor Ward has, uh, you know, he got hit by a pitch late last year and also has dealt with some other injuries over his career. And Anthony Rendon is pretty famously uh, not been on the field a lot very much in the past few years. So I think, you know, there would be an argument for rotating the DH spot as opposed to having a pure DH just because you have so many of these health situations that you haven't been able to manage in recent years because, I mean, you know, you just didn't want to leave Otani on the bench and not have him in the lineup. And so there was no DH uh, time available to guys like Rendon and Trout and so on. And so I, as much as, you know, J.D. Martinez would be a boon to the lineup, I would almost prefer that they get somebody like Bellinger and then, you know, him and Trout take turns in center field and DH sort of thing, just to keep everybody a little bit more fresh. Uh, but then obviously Bellinger is going to take uh, a lot more money than JD Martinez. So it's a completely different uh, calculation there. There's also DH types who can play a little bit more than Martinez. I don't think you want to be relying on Jorge Soler as like an everyday outfielder, but he can play like 30, 40 games. Uh, how would you feel if they did that instead of JD Martinez? I don't know about Solaire specifically. Um, I just, I, he's not a player that in general I would want to target in free agency just because of how streaky he's been offensively. Um, but I, I guess the other question then, if you're, would be, if you would be uncomfortable about a full time DH, what would you feel about somebody like Hoskins or maybe Brandon Belt who could play a little bit of first base and maybe be the full time DH in theory, but they can move to first if they need to send. Shanuel back down. How confident are you that Shanuel can stick at the major league level all year? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I saw last year watching the Jays and uh, Brandon Belt. I think he played like 30, 40 games to give Vladdy a breather at first every once in a while. Um, and he seemed fine there. So I think that would be uh, a good point. And Shanuel, I don't really know. It's, I mean, that's a, a very interesting trajectory where he just, within a couple months of his uh, drafting, was in the major leagues. And held himself well, but it was also a small sample size. So 
I don't know. I mean, having a little bit of first base insurance is a logical step. So yeah, Hoskins or Belt, uh, yeah, I think that would be, I would probably feel pretty good about that if they did that. Okay, so let's get to a question here from Russell, who says, uh, with the Mets in uh, rebuild slash retooling mode and the Mariners in need of another infield bat, and they have a surplus of controllable young arms, is there a trade there? Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, Francisco Lindor, even? Uh, what do you think about Russell's uh, uh, being a vulture on the Mets roster, Anthony? Uh, so no, I don't think they're going to trade any of those guys. Uh, of the three, I would say McNeil is probably the most likely, but even that seems very unlikely. They've made clear, David Stearns has said repeatedly that Alonso is going to be their opening day first baseman. They're not going to trade Lindor, who's under contract for like a decade. Um, and again, McNeil, probably not. They just extended him. He's in theory, they're starting second baseman still. Um, I, I don't think that they're, they're not going like full teardown mode, clearly. But I guess the question then is whether you think that's a sensible course of action for them, especially with regards to Alonso, because he will be a free agent after this season. It doesn't seem like there's a ton of optimism about an extension. It seems more that their general hope is that, OK, we'll let him get to free agency, but we'll be able to bring him back because he loves it here and we're the Mets and we can spend. Um, but do you think that's. One, would that be a wise long-term investment for you? And then two, do you think that's something that they should bet on if they're not all in for 2024? Well, it seems to me like, I mean, one year of Alonzo, you know, the trade return will probably still be pretty good at the deadline if they're out of it. So it seems like it seems like they're planned for now because as much as they've talked about this like retooling sort of like weird uh, transition 2024 season, it's not like they're tanking. Like they are still... You know, Stearns is signing guys to try and bolster the rotation, bolster the bullpen, uh, adding some depth in fielders. And it seems like the plan is to sort of run it back uh, without committing too much or any future dollars, seeing what happens, seeing if they can, you know, be hovering around 500 and in the wildcard race. And if they're not, then they can sell Alonzo and... Um, I mean, I think that's a fine plan given where they are, where it's like they don't want to do a full teardown, but they think their chances of competing are better in, you know, 25, 26 and uh, into the future once they see, uh, you know, Ronald Acuna's brother, Luis Angel, is going to be maybe coming up and some of their other prospects. And so it's a weird thing to be spending all this money to be like over the top luxury tax tier, but also kind of just hoping to be sneaking into a wild card spot it's a weird position to be in but it also seems like if it doesn't uh go according to plan then they still have plenty of ability to pivot at the deadline they'll be able to sell alonzo and jose quintana and they've signed all these one-year deals so if like if luis Severino is pitching well if harrison bader is playing well uh you know sean Manaya, they have all these pieces that they can trade at the deadline if it doesn't go well uh and i don't think alonzo's trade value will drop too much between now and then what do you think anthony yeah that's all fair um i would feel better about the chance of contention if they had done a little more on the rotation front as opposed to just taking the kind of bounce back flyers and severino Manaya and like trading for adrian hauser and hoping that david peterson will come back from injury and be a viable back end guy uh, but i do still like the lineup enough that i think that 
it's it's okay for them to wait and see where they're at um, come July. I, I don't expect them to be alongside the Braves at the top of the division, but I could buy this team as a plausible wildcard team still. We have another question here from Kent. How odd is it that we are this late in January and have several players likely to get multi-year deals? Montgomery, Snell, Chapman? Compare it to last year and you'll see almost no one signed a big deal after January 1st. Well, um, fortunately, we had a post on the site um, from one Dar McDonald looking at precisely this yesterday. So I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, so I actually don't think it is that odd. I think maybe it is odd relative to like very recent history because, um, you know, in the past few years, we've had some weird off seasons with uh, after 2020 uh, with the pandemic where it was nobody knew what was going on with the market after, uh, you know, playing a season without fans. And then after 2021 was the lockout. And so there was sort of a flurry of activity before the lockout and then a flurry of activity after the lockout. And then the last off season uh, was just, there was lots of talent and, you know, teams were aggressive, uh, you know, revenue was coming back after the pandemic and lots of spending. And so I think this off season might feel a little bit off compared to those recent ones. But if you look back pre pandemic and, uh, you know, on different uh, collective bargaining agreements, it's actually not that rare to see these kind of major free agents still lingering this late. But yeah, I was surprised when I wrote up, I wrote the post about, I focused specifically on Scott Boris free agents because he is, you know, he has a reputation for playing this waiting game. And I was pretty surprised by how it almost never worked out, at least relative to the expectations going into the off season. Now we don't know what kind of uh, discussions were happening behind the scenes in most of these cases, but you know, you look at somebody like Bryce Harper as like a famous example, uh, MLB trade rumors predicted him for over $400 million at the start of the off season. And we don't know what kind of offers he was getting in November, December, or January, but he eventually signed after spring training had already begun for $330 million, which is a lot of money is a great contract, but it was below what was expected by most people going into the off season. And that seemed to be the case a lot of the time. So it'll be very interesting to see now where it's not like Boris has one guy right now with Harper that he's trying to get paid. He's trying to get a whole bunch of guys paid. The four top remaining free agents are all Boris guys, Snell, Montgomery, Chapman, and Bellinger. And then he also has uh, Hoskins and JD Martinez. So that's six out of our top 50 guys that he's still trying to find pretty significant contracts for. And as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's a lot of clubs who are sort of in uncertain situations with the, the TV revenue and, you know, Plenty of other teams have already spent way beyond the luxury tax or are right up against it. And so it'll be very interesting to see if he can find these big contracts for these six guys. Um, but I actually don't think it's, uh, to get back to Kent's question, I actually don't think it's that unusual. You know, we, uh, in previous off seasons, some late deals, you know, Max Scherzer signed in January a couple of years ago. Uh, Prince Fielder is maybe the most famous one of, um, Boris getting a guy paid late. There's all kinds of um, significant deals that have happened 
at this point. Um, but I think it's a combination of the market. Uh, this The free agent market was a little bit on the weaker side, and a lot of teams had sort of payroll concerns. And so there's sort of been this uh, stalemate. Uh, but that's all the time that we have for this week's episode. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, of course. Looking forward to the next time. So like I mentioned, three weeks to go until uh, spring training gets going, but still a lots of free agent deals that need to be worked out, trades that need to be worked out, lots of stuff going on uh, in the baseball world in the next coming weeks. And uh, before you know it, you'll be seeing uh, pitchers and catchers throwing on those backfields. Um, so go to MLBTradeRumors.com for all the content and sign up for the front office package because you get rid of the ads and get some extra stuff. And uh, we will see you for next week's podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Remember to visit MLBTradeRumors.com and follow us on Twitter at MLBTradeRumors.com. 